Hello, this is Andrew Brewer with Northwest Area Health Education Center's Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of my guest, of talking with my guest, Amy McMichael. She's a professor of dermatology at Wake Forest School of Medicine and also the recipient of the 2022 Medical Dermatology Society's Lifetime Achievement Award. So congratulations, first of all. And thank you so much. <laughs> and welcome. And and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in your field and what this Lifetime Achievement Award means to you. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be uh, here today and speaking with you. It's really quite an honor. Um, my background is that I'm a, a kid from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, grew up in North Philadelphia. I know a lot of times people say they're from Philadelphia, but they're really from a suburb outside of Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia proper right. and uh, grew up there, um, trained there at Penn, University of Pennsylvania for med school and went off to Michigan for my residency. And uh, my plan was to come down to Wake Forest for a couple of years of in-depth epidemiology studies. And uh, 27 years later, um, I'm still here, chair of the department. So it's it's obviously been a great place for me. I have loved being here. I've done pretty much every job that you could do in the department and had amazing support and camaraderie in our department. Our former founding chair, Dr. Char Dr. Joseph Urizzo, uh was the Lifetime Achievement Award winner last year. And he will be presenting me with my award this year. So it really is quite, um, you know, kind of surreal situation um, that I just really am um, honored to to be part of, to tell you the truth. That's great. And you get like like a $10 Starbucks card or something. <laughs> <laughs> Big plaque that I have to uh, try to fit in my suitcase on the way back from the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, congrats, and it speaks volumes of your service and, and dedication to your field. Um, so the skin is the largest organ in the body, and we, we a lot of us, you know, we forget that, and uh, we forget how important it is for things like respiration and waste elimination and all those good things. Um, what was it about dermatology that, that attracted you? You know, I think um, there are a couple of things. One is that we can really see every single person, um, you know, every age, every ethnicity, because we all have skin, you know. And so, uh, you know, that was a real draw because I didn't want to just do pediatrics. I didn't want to just see one kind of person. Um, and I think that the other thing is, or, or one of the other things is that, you know, we can really make people feel a lot better. You know, when people have skin issues, you know, whether it's psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, it is disruptive to life. You know, people forget that because if they don't have skin problems, it just seems like, oh, well, this is not a big deal. But these people wake up in the morning itching. They often can't sleep at night. You know, we've shown in uh, research that children with atopic dermatitis, uh, you know, will oftentimes uh, be left behind in school because they're so, um, uh, it's so difficult for them to concentrate. They don't sleep well. Uh, parents don't sleep well. It's it's a horrible, you know, disease. And I think it's easy to forget that the skin, um, you know, seems like it's just an easy thing, you know, slap some cream on it and 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 you're in, in good control. It, it really isn't, which is, um, you know, sort of shown by the idea that there are now lots of uh, systemic agents coming out to treat uh, the diseases that we've been treating for so long um, with topical 
uh, things or things that weren't even FDA approved to treat these things to try to get people comfortable. So I think that the fact that we are there and understand and can help guide people on these paths to the right treatment was really what helped me. And, and it's all visual, right? You can see that people are better. It's not just one of those things where they say, well, yeah, my headache's gone. I feel better. It's like, you know, they're better because you can see them and they can then expose their skin and, and, and really affects their quality of life. So that was a big reason. The other thing I think that attracted me, um, one of the other big things that attracted me to dermatology is that um, we could do procedures. You know, I like doing things with my hands. It didn't necessarily need to be inside, you know, people's guts. I, I have great respect for those people who do wonderful abdominal surgeries and urologic surgeries and so forth. But, you know, that wasn't a calling for me. But, you know, to, to remove skin cancers and um, large, you know, lesions, to take biopsies and to do cosmetic procedures is really um, quite um you know, interesting to me, and and I think the more that we improve our techniques and those sorts of things, it becomes even more interesting. So it's one of those things that you do, but you also grow as you continue to do it. And so, um, you know, so I think that's that's been a lot of fun. The the last thing I would say is that you know I saw also when I was training that there was really a dearth of opportunity for uh, people with skin of color to. Um, have treatment options that worked for them in a lot of situations. And so I thought that was a place that, you know, I saw a niche for myself. And so that's kind of where I've grown my research and, you know, where I put most of my efforts. I, I like to see all kinds of patients, but, um, but that's sort of my niche research uh, interest. Well, thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask how much truth uh, to this phrase or to the statement that the skin is like a leading indicator of things that are going wrong with the, the body system. I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, that's, that's, you know, we're one of the last bastions of medicine where we don't use uh, tests all the time to figure out what people have. You know, a lot of times people don't believe us, you know, that we know what we're talking about. <laughs> so we often biopsy to, to prove it to the patients and, and, and our other colleagues, but we can walk into rooms and, and look to see that, you know, people have, uh, renal disease or cardiac disease, um, underlying infections. I mean, it really can be. You know, there are obviously diseases that just affect the skin, you know, but there are also uh, a lot of telltale signs that we still use in the physical exam to tell us, you know, that people have lupus, for instance, that people have, um, you know, a really significant uh, rheumatologic disease. All of these things can, uh, oh, many of these things can be uh, seen right on the skin. And sometimes even we have to do biopsies on these things to sort of figure out between, you know, very um, rare conditions, you know, which one is it, you know, but, but in general, I think that it really is one of those uh, uh, disorders where you, one of those specialties where you can just look at, at people and, and kind of figure out what's happening internally. It's, it's a kind of an exciting uh, thing that, that we still uh, do in our profession and our, in our specialty. Now, just kind of a sidebar, do people come up to you that, that see you in the at the grocery store or something and say, hey, look at this rash. What do you 
Yes, unfortunately, it is a hazard of the job. I've been at parties where people are like trying to disrobe in the middle of the party. I'm like, hey, hey, let's get boundaries, you into a boundaries. bedroom. Or, yeah, let's get you into a room where it's just you and me, and we could I could take a look for you and tell you if you need to come in for a visit. But uh, yeah, so I've had a lot of that approach. You know, yeah, luckily it's not so much in the in the parking lot, but uh, or in the uh, store. But I have had people run up to me and try to, you know, tell me, and I'm holding my groceries, and I'm like, okay, probably we need to talk about this in the office <laughs> you know they want to give me updates um, but it's uh, it's okay i i don't mind it i you know we we handle it because we know it's part of the job <laughs> that's great that's great now you mentioned lupus um and i don't want to talk to you more about that in a minute but uh, what are the like first of all what are the most common things that you see and then have you seen noticed any trends or things changing over the the course of your career that that uh, would indicate, you know, environmental or social or uh, dietary or anything trends that are that are happening. Mm -hmm. Well, the number one thing that brings people to see the dermatologist, um, at least in this country, is is acne vulgaris. It's not one of my specialties, you know, but we it's something that we can all do pretty much in our sleep. You know, it's the easiest one of the easiest things and, and most common things that we see. Um, but again, you know, it's still, yet again, it still affects patients and it can be very, very severe and can um, affect quality of life. So the good thing about acne is that people in our specialty and, and pharmaceutical companies have taken it really seriously. And we've actually had uh, an increase in medications that are really specifically targeting, you know, the way acne um, comes about. So we've seen better and better treatment options for acne. Um, interestingly, we do see an increase in acne in, um, in our adolescents and in adults. And I think that a lot of that um, is we're now understanding due to our diet, um, obesity trends, hormonal imbalances related to um, obesity uh, or overweight. And so I think that, yeah, we, we are seeing some trends in, in that way um, uh, coming, coming into the office. And so, you know, I tend to um, talk to my patients about you know, their eating habits and healthy eating and all this is part of my um, recommendations for, for acne. We, we have some suggestion even that uh, certain kinds of um, uh, milk products uh, can also increase the uh, onset of acne or worsening of acne. So, uh, yeah, we're finding out new things every day. You know, there's, there's even some, you know, data on climate control or climate issues um, affecting, you know, some of the things that we see in our specialty. So I, I think that there's, uh, you know, a lot to be learned, um, but acne is, is just one of those things that, you know, it comes readily to mind. Now, of course, skin cancers, you can't, you know, have a talk with a dermatologist without talking about skin cancers in terms of environmental impact. And we still see loads of skin cancers because, you know, people just don't protect themselves from the sun. They think, oh, well, you know, I'm not out here sunning on a beach. But the sun doesn't really care what you're doing. If you're in it, you're driving around in it, you're flying in it. You know, we see a lot of skin cancer in um, pilots, for instance, because they're up so high without us uh, protection oftentimes. But people in North Carolina, you know, we're in the sun all the time, even in the winter, even when it's, it's you know, overcast, the sun is still um, coming through. So, so my message never ends to tell people to really protect themselves, sun protective clothing, hats, sunscreen, um, all of those things are so important. Well, what, you know, it seems like there's a <clears throat> paradox uh, there with uh, 
you know, sun exposure and vitamin D deficiency, because I've, I've been hearing more and more about vitamin D deficiency and its relation to all kinds of things that can go on uh, uh, with the body and, uh, you know, your immune system resilience and things like that. So, so uh, you know, how important is, is that in your line of work of, of vitamin D and skin health? Mm-hmm. Vitamin D and skin health is very important. So we actually look at it a lot for, um, you know, any kind of situation, uh, you know, that's a systemic disease. Um, we certainly look at it for hair loss, um, you know, things that are unexplained symptoms of, of rash, that sort of thing. So we do look at it and I think vitamin D is important. Um, however, what you don't see is that people have uh, low vitamin D because um, of, of using sunscreen. You know, we don't see that really happening. You know, you're your machinery that makes vitamin D from sun exposure, you know, and, and working your skin might not be as effective as it should be, but being out in the sun longer doesn't make it more effective, you know? So you got machinery, it works at a certain rate. Increasing your sun exposure doesn't increase that um, efficacy of your machinery. So you really still are going to have to take it in either by, you know, a sub, you know, a supplement or by your, uh, you know, your food intake. So unfortunately, people have this idea it's like, oh, if I just stay in the sun, I'll get all the vitamin D I need, but it doesn't really work like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, supplementing the, the diet is really where you're going to get more bang for your buck in that circumstance. So yeah, so we're re- big proponents of vitamin D health. Um, but we're also big proponents of not having to have your ear or nose removed because of big skin cancer. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and drink vitamin D fortified milk and get acne. And so you, you have a good, <laughs> good pipeline of patients coming. <laughs> no, lots of other good ways to get vitamin D. There's wonderful supplements and certainly there's lots of foods that are, are high in vitamin D other than milk. Yeah. Well, in the same realm of skin health, what are what are some things that, uh, you know, people and, and also clinicians can can recommend uh, for people to just general overall health. I mean, obviously, good diet, um, you know, just taking care of your skin. But what you know, what are some basic things and, and maybe things that research is showing to enhance the you know resilience and longevity and and softness and all the things that we we care about when we talk about skin. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I talk to my patients about every day is using gentle cleansers. You know, people have you know, their favorites that they've used since they've been a child. And um, sometimes those don't work forever. You know, they say to me, well, you know, I've never had skin problems before. And, you know, they're in my office about 65 or 68 or or 80, you know, and I said, well, that's true. But sometimes things develop, you know, it seems like they accept the fact that they have, you know, uh, renal disease and they have to wear glasses and they have diabetes, but for some reason, the skin is supposed to stay static forever and you're supposed to have great skin no matter what you do. So you have to sometimes change with your age and change with the way your skin changes. So for instance, right now, um, you know, it's cold, it's a little drier. So people are coming in with a lot of of uh, concerns about itchy skin, dry skin, that sort of thing. So, you know, look at your products, take out things with fragrance, um, take out things that have a lot of other additives in them and use gentle things. You know, we, at, when we talk to patients, we have certain brands that we recommend to patients because they're really tested by dermatologists and they have very little fragrances and other additives. Um, you know, but moisturize your skin every day. A lot of people, you know, they jump in the shower, they jump out and they go on about their business, but your skin is going to do much, much better um, in terms of moisturizing. Um, or, or moisturization and not be dry and itchy if you moisturize every day. And and that's especially true for your face. People who have 
oily skin, say wash it, moisturize, but you should you just use a thin moisturizer because that minimizes um, fine lines. It minimizes, you know, sort of that that dryness that, you know, makes you look older. So we do recommend, um, you know, getting a nice, clean skincare regimen of gentle washes, gentle moisturizers um, and, you know, really take time to, uh, you know, use even thicker moisturizers, like just plain old petroleum jelly on your hands and feet, you know, in the winter time, because that can sort of soften the skin and, and minimize fissuring and irritation and itch, uh, which can lead then to, you know, further skin breakdown. Mm. Um, so, so uh, just had a question pop in my head and it popped out just as quick. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I, what is the latest or the current wisdom on, uh, uh, how stress affects the skin? Good question. So stress affects the skin in just the same way it does for all other illnesses. You know, if you're prone to headaches, um, you know, you, have, you get stressed at work, you're going to have worsening of your headache or increased uh, numbers of headaches. Uh, same for abdominal concerns, same for pain in your back. And so it, it's the same for, for skin disease. If you have a, a baseline skin issue, psoriasis, um, you know, atopic dermatitis, uh, um, you know, any of those things can worsen with, you know, with stress. And so stress doesn't cause them, um, but certainly can make them worsen. And we see it with certain kinds of hair loss, um, you know, lots of different kinds of rashes, you know, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, anything that you have that's medical, um, you know, you add anxiety and stress to it and, and you can have an increased risk of worsening and cert certainly symptoms can worsen a lot as well. So we, we do monitor that, that with our patients. We do a lot of quality of life studies um, in dermatology because obviously a lot of times our patients aren't dying of their diseases. They just have severe effect of quality of life. And um, luckily, we've seen that in a lot of diseases where we've made a lot of strides, say, for instance, in psoriasis, where, you know, when I was training, uh, we had a lot of immunosuppressant drugs that didn't work as thoroughly as we would have liked. You know, I had people who were, um, you know, in wheelchairs from their psoriatic arthritis because we couldn't control it. You know, we rarely see that now because people... Um, get treatment early and 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 it improves their quality of life. They weren't dying of their psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis, but you know they could barely walk. They were in pain every minute, every day, and itching and um, you know shunned by their coworkers and family. But you know now we can measure their quality of life has gone up tremendously. So quality of life, I think, is imp important, and that's where that stress and anxiety kind of falls for us. We look at it, we say, okay, let's improve the quality of life of this patient. So that when they do have stressful events, anxiety provoking events, um, their skin is not going to, you know, suddenly worsen, or at least we can have, um, you know, things that they're ready if they do have flares and so we need to address it. We can um, figure out how to work that for each individual patient. Great. Um, so, uh, God, another time it just popped right in and popped right out. Uh, <laughs> I'm struggling with answers. I give long answers and it makes you think of things and then you forget things because then I say something else. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to ask. Um, so how much overlap is there? I mean, I have a my personal story was that I was convinced I had a food allergy and I had this mm. rash on my arms and stomach and everything and it would flare up and I went to the dermatologist and they're like, no, it's not food allergies. It's called it's urticaria and urticaria. Really, urticaria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. Mm -hmm. couldn't really nail down what it was causing it. Um, but we got it under control and 
turned out that it was during a time that I was having some stressors in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And once I eliminated those stressors and changed some things in my life, it just miraculously went away. But I was convinced it was a food allergy. But how much overlap do you have with the with the allergists and, and that kind of thing? We work with patients um, a lot with allergists, you know, so urticaria, chronic urticaria or hives, you know, most people know it by better, um, is one of those, one of those things. And so we work diligently with them. You know, a lot of times people come in and, and you know, they don't just have, you know, some little rash on their arm or, or stomach. They, their entire face is, you know, edematous, you know, because they have such bad hives. And they're people that live with chronic urticaria all their lives. So they're constantly itching and irritated. I mean, every single day. So we work with them very, um, uh, you know, commonly, you know, we do a certain kind of test called a, a patch test, which is more for contact allergens and they do prick tests, which are more, which is more for the urticaria. So a lot of times we'll, we have people with kind of rashy things, plus hives, we'll do our patch testing. Then we'll send them to the allergist to do the prick testing uh, for certain exposures. And we usually co-manage those patients a lot, or a lot of times we co-manage them because there are some really great, um, long-term hive medications out now. Uh, one of them is called Zolaire. I don't work with the company at all, but, um, and then there's a new one that's out, that's coming out uh, that is actually probably even better. So, so yeah, we co-manage with a lot of teams. We co-manage with rheumatology quite often because we have patients, as I stated, with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, um, you know, or uh, lupus. We manage the skin manifestations of the lupus when they manage some of the internal manifestations. Uh, we work with uh, surgeons. We refer to plastic surgery quite frequently for our hydradenitis patients. Those are patients that have these really big, boils and inflammatory lesions in, um, you know, sort of the underarms, the groin area, under breasts. It is one of the worst diseases. I mean, you feel absolutely awful 100% of the time with that disease in a lot of cases. So we work with them for some of the larger surgery kinds of things that they can do. So we're very, we're very um, um, often working with other teams to, to try to get people better. We see people with a lot of uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Um, so skin, a, a form of skin cancer that you typically don't die from, but you you die with it, and it can be, you know, mild to, to very extensive. So we work with uh, uh, radiation oncology, we work with uh, hematology oncology on these patients because sometimes you know they need a little bit of uh, a more than what we can actually offer, or different treatment, I should say, than we can offer them. And so we work together um, quite frequently with these other teams. Okay, good. Now, you mentioned lupus a couple of times. Can you, uh, you know, explain to me and, and the audience what, what lupus is and how it manifests and, and what are the causes or and, and what are the treatments? Absolutely. So lupus, um, you can come in a lot of different forms. You can have just cutaneous lupus, which is just lupus of the skin. You can have systemic lupus, which is, you know, exactly what it sounds like. It affects more organs in the body and lupus can affect any organ in the body. It's truly an autoimmune disease. Um, so, you know, it comes from your genetics uh, and <clears throat> you'll see oftentimes people will have more than one person in the family with lupus or other people have other autoimmune diseases like thyroid disease or MS or, or, or something else that's autoimmune. At any rate, a lot of times it'll manifest when we see it as a certain kind of rash on the body. It can be a certain kind of rash on the face. It can be a certain kind of rash on any part of the exposed skin. People can be more photosensitive than a normal person. And so some of all of the history can help us decide if it's lupus, but a lot of times the biopsy is really key. 
Um, unfortunately, because um, it can be systemic, you can have a lot of really uh, severe internal abnormalities, um, kidney problems, heart problems, neurologic problems, um, you, you name it. Lupus can affect, you know, that that body system and really cause a lot of damage. I've actually lost several of my uh, young lupus patients. It actually is more common in African-American women. Uh, and there's some research uh, being done on that at University of Michigan where they're looking at why that might be the case. It's actually more common in women in general um, as well. And um, and they've they've uh, you know both had renal dis disorders associated with their lupus and ended up um, you know passing away uh, related to the the renal uh, side effects of the of the disease. So it's a serious disease, and and we work you know very closely to make sure when the patients come in with just a rash that they don't have systemic disease, and if they do, you know that would be where we would sort of broach uh, working together with rheumatology to make sure we get everything that they need because these patients um, can can go downhill quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now I saw the word hirsutism, uh, <laughs> and I, I lived in the Caribbean for a little while. And if you're over fifty and female, it is a badge of honor to have facial hair. Um, ah. You know to have you know just chin hair and stuff and it's like they're proud of it so is that more of a cultural thing that you absolutely that you <laughs> it's definitely cultural because here in the u.s nobody wants facial no women want facial hair very few i'll say um yeah so hirsutism is kind of an interest of mine too um i got into it because i have an interest in hair disorders in general uh, we see it a lot in, um, actually, we see it increase in a number of patients who are of African-American descent with this as well. And I think it goes back to some of the metabolic stuff that we were talking about before. Um, acne, hirsutism, all of that sort of is a, um, you know, a, a harbinger of, you know, potentially insulin insensitivity. So, you know, we talk to our patients about that. You know, not everybody. Some of it's obviously genetic and some of it is, um, you know, just going to be specific to that person or that family. Um, but, but we do see it increasing um, in, in, um, in our populations of late. Anyway, so what it is for people who don't know is that, you know, facial hair in a, in a woman in what is typically thought of as a male, uh, you know, care, secondary male characteristic. So beard, you know, mustache, you know, chest hair, you know, those sorts of places where you would not typically think of it as a, a female characteristic. So people come in and they want to, you know, deal with their their facial hair or their, um, you know, chest hair. And, and there are medical ways to do that. There's a topical medication that can slow the growth of hair, hard to get and pretty expensive, and you have to use it continuously. Um, you could sometimes use an oral medication um, called spironolactone, uh, which is actually a hypertensive, antihypertensive medicine, but it it affects the um, the uh, testosterone receptors and uh, on the cells, so it can actually help. Uh, but again, you have to take it, and you know, could have potential side effects. So what what we found to help patients, um, and and I think it helps patients most is is a hair removal laser. Um, so that started out about I want to say twenty four years ago, 25 years ago, and, you know, now is, you know, sort of, you know, one of those things that we just do without even thinking about it. But, you know, when I was training, there was no such thing. Um, now people can come in and get, you know, uh, lasers in patients of color, usually have to have somewhere between eight and 10 
uh, laser treatments to really have significant hair reduction. And, and we tell our patients, of course, you know, we're not able to control what your hormones are doing. Your hormones, if they want to grow thick hairs in places that we haven't treated yet, you know, you may have to come in for some maintenance, you know, once a year, every two years, something like that. But it has made such a difference in the quality of life of people, um, you know, who, who basically, you know, get up before everybody else in their house, so they can put on a full face of makeup before anybody sees them. You know, I had a woman, when I first started doing laser 20 some odd years ago, she told me she, she was crying. She said, you know, I don't have to uh, put on makeup before I go to Home Depot in the morning because I don't have facial hair anymore. It, it has made such a huge change in people's lives because they're just so, um, you know, just affected by it. And they know people can see it and, and it just makes them feel uncomfortable. And, and not to mention, you know, in some men, um, with facial hair that is very coarse and thick, they oftentimes have what we call pseudo folliculitis barbae, which is where the hair gets inflamed and the skin can be very painful. Um, you get kind of pustules, almost like an acne kind of effect um, in the beard area or in the posterior neck. So we've treated a lot of men too, not because they don't want to have facial hair, but they just don't want to have that pain and that irritation. So we treat in areas where they don't mind losing hair, like no man really wants a neck beard, you know, so... <laughs> We can treat that easily as well, uh, make them feel a lot more comfortable. And not all women with facial hair can move to the West Indies either, I guess. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, but I recommend, I'll start recommending that to my patients. Is there any chance that you could go to the West Indies? Because I hear that your facial hair would be very well accepted there. Well, you know, one thing you said that, that made sense is a lot of the women I see with that are a little heavier. So it may have some diabetic uh, concerns there too. Um yeah, or at least some sort of hormonal, you know, insulin sensitivity stuff. Not everybody who has facial hair is diabetic, so we don't want to get that out there. But I yeah, think it's yeah. good to see a dermatologist and talk over, you know, what else may be going on. For instance, if you have acne and you have, you know, irregular periods and you have um, facial hair, it may be that you have the constellation of symptoms that make up something called the polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that's actually a very, or PCOS, we say for short, that's a very common thing that we diagnose in young women who come in with that constellation of symptoms. And it's important because um, they need to understand that they can sort of help things if they're eating right, diet, you know, and, and um, their diet is healthy and that they're exercising, but also it can lead to some infertility issues and they might want to know that early on. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big things. That's one of the places where we will overlap with endocrine, say, or with um, OBGYN. Nice. Um, so back to diet and lifestyle and stuff, how important is staying hydrated for our skin? I think I know the answer, but I want to. <laughs> well, you know, I think, um, you know, everybody has a different gauge on this and I'm not the hydration expert, but what I'll say is, is that, you know, certainly, you know, drinking uh, substances without a lot of sugars and a lot of additives is, is certainly reasonable and, and making sure you get, you know, adequate hydration. But I don't think that eight glasses of water a day is where we are anymore. We know we get a lot of fluids from our foods. And if you're eating a lot of vegetables and fruits, you know, you're going to be um, getting some, uh, uh, you know, fluids in that way. So, you know, I think everybody's a little different. Certainly you want to drink some uh, you know, as I say, pretty clean substances throughout the day, but I don't think you have to do the eight glasses of water. And certainly drinking more water does not, you know, clear up your skin, that sort of thing. Um, we don't find, you know, people drink coffee and tea and that's liquid and it it, it, it counts, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, back to the uh, cultural thing, um, down the West Indies too, I noticed a lot of women 
especially women will use bleaching products for their skin mm. that contain, I forget what the ingredient starts with a Q, I think. That's, hydroquinone. hydroquinone. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I witnessed that and just was aghast at, at the possible side effects from, from that uh, ingredient. But do you see that up here that much with, with yeah. women of color? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I see it in women of color, women not of color. I mean, I think, um, you know, pigmentary um, changes and irregularities, what we call dyschromias are a big thing. You know, one of the biggest things that we treat in uh, women specifically are um, is melasma. And that's a form of pigmentation that you see on the cheeks, the nose, the forehead. Um, you can sometimes even see it on the arms and the neck uh, where the sun um, has an interaction with the pigment with the hormones in your skin and causes uh, pigmentation. And you know, people of course don't want to walk around with a you know brown, you know, big swath of brown over their upper lip makes them look like they have a, a, a you know like a, a a mustache or something. And then it, you know this this coloration and irregular pigmentation makes people feel uncomfortable. So we do see that quite a bit here. Um, we also see a lot of what we call post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So say people have an underlying, you know, skin issue, eczema, um, psoriasis, acne, and if, especially if you're darker skinned, that inflammation from the primary situation, once it even heals, it's this leaves behind damage that allows the pigment cells to come out into the skin. And so you have dark spots where you had the rash and people don't like that either. So we end up treating quite a bit of pigmentation and, and people really of all colors. And mm -hmm. one of the top ways we do it is with this hydroquinone. The problem is, is that there's a lot of black market hydroquinone or black market similar drugs that have that as their ingredient. And instead of having them at the level of about 4%, which is the prescription level of the drug, um, you see it at 6%, 8%, 10%. It's not well mixed. It's not well uh, made and so it can cause, you know, wreak havoc on the skin, causing uh, too much lightning, irritation, you know, all kinds of uh, potential side effects. Now, some countries have actually banned all of hydroquinone, like in Japan, you can't get it at all because of some really not well done studies on rats that looked at super high doses and increase in risk in, in cancer. But we don't think that that's the case. Um, but certainly, um, you know, the use of hydroquinone should be managed by physicians that understand how it works. And we also have a lot of other ways that we can work to minimize pigmentation. So, you know, I tell my patients with acne, first of all, they, they're more worried about the dark spots because the acne bumps come and go in a week. The dark spots stay for three to six months. So they're worried about the pigment. I say, okay, let's treat the primary disease process. You know, I know you want to get those dark spots under control, but let's get the primary process under control first, and then your body will do the work. And and really, truly be honest with you, a lot of those pigmentations pigmentation issues will improve, you know, slowly over time as your body kind of eats up that pigment. It's just a slower process and the, and the hydroquinone doesn't make it that much faster. So a lot mm -hmm. of times just, you know, talking to patients and explaining to them how to think about it helps. Um, for melasma, which is a primary pigmentation issue, on the other hand, you know, we can do other things. So increase your, your um, use of sunscreen and hats and, you know, shade kind of structures when you're outside can, can be amazingly helpful. Uh, we have a lot of other products now that we can use, um, and I won't go to, into all of them, but in our, prime, in our uh, cosmetic center, in our department, we have estheticians that are trained to use 
uh, things other than hydroquinone because some people do have a sensitivity to hydroquinone or don't wish to use it. So, and we can do chemical peels, uh, micro microneedling with uh, platelet rich plasma, which is one of the kind of cool, neat things that's new in dermatology in the last 10 years. Um, so we have a lot of ways that we can really address this pigmentation issue or these pigmentation issues um, with or without hydroquinone. Um, but, it, you know, it can be used in moderation in, a, in an effective way, um, but certainly not as, um, as you suggested, you know, where people can just go crazy. It's also an issue in Africa, you know, with this uh, black market uh, products as well. So we're very, you know, very cognizant of that, um, but we use it in, a, in ways that are healthy and, and helpful for patients. Um, Good. You know, the, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say one of the other things that we can do in people with melasma is we talked to them about, you know, are you taking an oral contraceptive with hormones because those will sometimes increase the risk or sometimes you'll get it when you're pregnant, which of course you can't avoid if you want to have babies, but you know, those things can sort of make the difference and and why you're getting so much melasma. Yeah, well, I appreciate the clarification on the hydro quinone because uh, I was kind of alarmist with it when I found out about it and did a little you know cursory research it was like carcinogen and causes gout and and, and all these other things and <clears throat> I was turned on to it or, or made aware of it in, in Barbados and Grenada and Jamaica yeah. and places like that where women were just getting it at the little flea markets and it's probably that like you said probably compounded not very very strict uh quality control standards. So I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, we try that. to stop that. We try <clears throat> to stop that. It's a huge, huge problem. Yeah. So um what uh you know what what's changed the most in the in in the span of your career in the field and are there trends or are there things on the horizon that are exciting? Um and I'm thinking of like things like regenerative medicine and growing cells on scaffolding and can you grow skin and you know and, and what are all the what are some of the new innovations that you see out there well you could definitely grow skin that's that's not so hard i mean it's can you grow skin you know to cover an entire body no but you know things like that um help our burn victims um you know those sorts of things so we that's going on it's not really my area of research um but it but it does it does uh really improve Press upon our patients, you know, to to keep up with what's new because we we like to keep up with with what's new to help them. I think the some of the biggest things that have happened in dermatology in my lifetime have been the onset of uh, biologic medications. Um, you know, when like I said, when I was training, you know, people who had psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, those people just suffered through. Um, you know, high dose steroids most of the time, methotrexate, which can be, you know, a, a, a immunosuppressive agent is very helpful, anti-inflammatory agent in a lot of situations, but it also can be um, immunosuppressive and, and cause downstream side effects. Um, now, you know, we can put our patients on these biologic medications, which are typically injectables. And and we can control these diseases. I mean, you're not curing them, but you can control them to the point where you don't see evidence of them. They don't feel evidence of them in their joints. And um, it has really been an amazing thing. You know, we have probably close to 14, maybe 15 biologics for for psoriasis, and we now have drugs, non-biologic drugs um, for atopic dermatitis. So we have a drug called dupilumab, which is amazing. Uh, injectable uh, and and people that you know we used to have to admit to the hospital to control them with oral antibiotics or IV antibiotics and wet wraps and all kinds of you know care very uh, aggressive skin care 
in hospital now we can treat them with these medications at home. It is just amazing, you know, because these are things we grappled with for years. And now there are new drugs called JAK inhibitors. They first came out for rheumatologic disease and ulcerative colitis, but we were seeing um, how they can help with um, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, and alopecia areata, and probably more diseases in addition to that. There's a drug called tofacitinib that can be used off label. Um, we use off-label in some in some cases for people with uh, this autoimmune form of hair loss called alopecia areata. You've probably seen those people walking around. They don't have any eyebrows, no hair, no facial hair, and sometimes in some cases, no body hair. And and what we found is these JAK inhibitors can be very very helpful for them. And there's a, there's several that have been studied uh, for that purpose. So hopefully soon uh, the FDA will be approving those drugs. They you know obviously have uh, some side effects, but as we get more and more data, we get more and more specific drugs that help the problem that you're wanting to help without doing the really bad side effects. So I'd say the advances in uh, medications have been just amazing. And um, and I guess I, as what I see as a problem though, is that as we make these advances, people get more and more distrustful of medicine. And so they wanna come in and they say, you know, you wanna use, I wanna use something natural to treat this very horrible disease that I've had for the last 25 years. And, you know, and I think to myself, okay, well, you've seen five dermatologists and, you know, two primary care doctors and a cardiologist and an internist and a, you know, this and that, and, and nobody's giving you a natural treatment for this. And the reason is that there doesn't exist, you know, a natural <laughs> treatment that treats your disease. So we would all love that. But I also tell my patients that this idea of natural, is something that you have to really be careful with because snakes and tigers are natural and they will kill you. You know, so natural is not always best. You know, so coconut oil doesn't heal everything. <laughs> absolutely, and it can actually make a lot of things worse. So I, yeah, so I, I think you know you have to be um, open to the idea that your your doctor is is um, very um, reasonable in terms of. I got some a message coming up. Um, you know, doctors very reasonable in terms of understanding the pros and cons of using each medication in your specific instance, and is not going to recommend something that, you know, you shouldn't use. And and certainly, if you have a side effect complication, you you know, you talk about those things, and then you you know decide which way to go from there. But um, so I, I, I that's the one thing that I see in medicine that has really changed. And you know, people come and they say, well, I've done my research, you know, and it's the social media platforms that they're <laughs> researching, which, of course, are not always very helpful in terms of real data. <laughs> so I think people need to be more um, open to hearing what their doctor has to say as well. I read it in a message board, coconut oil. Yes. For <laughs> So how, how how prevalent and what are the causes of alopecia? Because I I, mm -hmm. I I know someone that had it or has it, um, and mm -hmm. and she she embraced it. So she was one of the rare because she just loved being bald and no hair, and so she just mm -hmm. that was her that was her identity. But what what how prevalent is it? Yeah. So um out so that particular form of hair loss, alopecia areata, um is like I said, an autoimmune, you know, genetically based, um, you know, uh, uh, hair loss form. And that probably has about a um, overall lifetime risk of about 2% um, or, or yeah, but about, well, about 1% actually. And so it's, you know, sounds like not very much, but 1% of the population is pretty common. So we see it quite frequently um, in our in our uh, clinics. And, you know, it's great if you can embrace it and some people are, are, are doing that. Um, 
other people are not so happy about it. And we have a lot of kids, a lot of teens, you know, it's hard for them because this is kind of a disease of younger people. We see it starting, um, you know, in, in the, you know, ages around four to six, um, you know, our teens, uh, you know, those folks are kind of making their way in life and, and anything different on you uh, than what other people have is going to be poked at and, and prodded and, and, and people feel uncomfortable. So we do are, we are, are very happy that there's treatments coming out for that. You know, these people, you talk about quality of life have really uh, low uh, quality of life, low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, we've had treatments that we could use with them uh, previously. So certainly people have just a patch of hair loss here or there. We could treat topically or with injections of steroid medicines or other other treatment options. But, you know, when you when you have complete hair loss on your body, um, you don't think it's going to affect you other than just the way you look. But if you don't have eyelashes, lots of stuff gets in your eyes. I mean, they walk around with chronic, uh, you know, uh, conjunctivitis because of it. And, and we don't realize that our nose hairs keep a lot of things out of our nose. So they don't have those to protect them either. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because it's not just, um, you know, how you look. It's also kind of how things work. Um, so we do we do like to treat those, but and, and that's just one form of hair loss. We see a lot of male and female pattern hair loss, which is that thinning that you see over time. You know, as we age, a lot of people don't want to lose their hair; they want to be bald. And so, you know, we're we're making strides in in treatment of those kinds of hair loss. Uh, we have scarring forms of hair loss um, that we see. One particular one that's um, came on the scene in the 90s, like nobody had even heard of it before 90, 1994. It's called frontal fibrosing alopecia. It's most common in women. And your hair line just continues to recede. It's just, and it's really oftentimes symptomatic. So you have itching and burning and stinging. And then this hairline, it just kind of continues to march back towards your your uh, crown. So it's it, it's really an interesting field. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking and treating this these disorders and um, we, we're really at the precipice of understanding them. We don't really quite understand them all, uh, especially these scarring ones. And and where did this one come from? You know, people wanted to say, well, it was, it was first uh, described in Australia, you know, it comes from sunscreens, but we've kind of debunked that and and we really don't know where it comes from, but it, it's 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 out there. And I'll, I'll tell you, I walk down the street, sometimes people's hair will blow and I'm like, oh, you know, they have it. You know, you can see it. So um, and certainly, you know, not everybody seeks treatment for it. But, um, you know, once you get the scarring kind of hair loss, you can't even do anything to get it back. So you got to treat it to kind of slow it down. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, another form of hair loss that's scarring in women of color, African-American women called central centrifugal scarring alopecia or CCCA. And I could probably make up my practice with just those patients. It's so, so common, you know, if I wanted to just see those patients and it is really devastating. Um, and we're, you know, doing a lot of work to try to figure that out. The genetics of it out, we figured some of the genetics of it out with help from a South African research group and an Israeli research group. And we're going to, we just got a big grant from the American Academy of Dermatology uh, to uh, look at a, uh, the Black Women's Health Study, which is up in Boston. It, it, uh, you uh, and another uh, uh, um, investigator, Dr. Yolanda Lindsay, is going to help us get access to the to the genetic materials from that study so that we can figure it out um, even better. Um, so we're excited that we can move our, our genetics research uh, more forward to try to figure this whole thing out. Great, great stuff. Now, uh, you mentioned injectables, and that brought something to 
came to mind for those who fight aging at every turn and things like Botox and fillers and those things. Is there anything about those type of cosmetic procedures that concern you or could be could be damaging? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, people who are ethical about doing them, you know, they're really a great uh, service to those who, who wish to have those products. You know, not everybody um, cares about, you know, how many wrinkles they have or, or, or the fact that they look like they're frowning all the time, you know, um, or, or or that they look like they're aging, you know, quite frankly, look very tired and, um, you know, very beat down. Some people, you know, look in the mirror and they think, you know, I really don't want to give this impression. I don't want to give the impression I'm tired because I'm not. I feel great. And they want their outsides to match the insides, you know, so, so those are the people that come in for treatment. So as long as it's done ethically, um, I think that, you know, and, and artistically, you know, we don't, we don't uh, want to just make people look like they have a bunch of face full of stuff, you know, that that's what people say to me when they come and I say, well, I don't want to look like those people on TV. And I say, you know, you'll never look like that in anybody at Wake Forest's hands because Number one, nobody ever wants to spend the money that they spend on those injectables because they're basically getting many facelifts, you know, from the injectables. So the cost of it is is really quite large. And if, and they want to look like they've had something. So if those people go home and they've had they've been to the dermatologist or the plastic surgeon, and and they tell people that, and people say, "Oh, I can't tell," they they're upset. Whereas the way we treat is we try to just enhance you know, what you have. We're not trying to make you look like you just came from my office. We want you to look just your best, you know. So we're enhancing as opposed to adding, you know, sort of an un, um, unrealistic look. You know, so those people are going for that. You know, we don't typically treat that way. And I think in normal life, you know, we, we, we want you to just look your best. Yeah, it always seemed kind of odd to me that people would put, you know, bovine toxins in their face. But the, I know people who who swear by it and do it every six months or so. so. Yeah, well, I mean, well, you know, you know, botulinum, botulinum toxin is is man made. You know, it's not coming from from okay. uh, animals. Um, and uh, you know, it, it what basically is is just a neuromuscular relaxant. I mean, that's all it is. So it relaxes, um, you know, the muscles that are you know moving all around in your face. So the, of course, the way they figured it out is that um, an ophthalmologist was married to a dermatologist. These are uh, they were Canadians, and this ophthalmologist was using it for uh, people who had um, you know you know, sort of uh, muscle quivering of the eyes. And she was noticing as she was putting it in there for these eye twitches um, that it was smoothing down the the muscles of the eyes. And so they were looking younger and she was like, hey, you should talk to her dermatologist husband. And that's, you know, how, how Botox was born as a treatment for, um, for, for muscles. But, you know, before that, it was used in people who have a lot of uh, musc- neuromuscular issues, like children who have very, um, you know, severe uh, muscle muscle spasms and that sort of thing. Um, you know, with the different kind of muscular dystrophies and that sort of thing. So, so you know, it's it's very helpful for for those things. But I think it also is helpful if you're if you're a CEO of a company and you walk around and look like you're frowning all the time. People do kind of think you're <laughs> frowning at them, you know. So yeah. smoothing it out and you know, kind of keeping your your cool, looking like you're keeping your cool all the time, may be very important thing in your life and um uh you know so i think it's certainly reasonable you know fillers again you know just sort of just you know fill the volume and kind of bring back a little bit more of a youthful look and so um you know so i think that those are certainly reasonable for those who wish them 
um, you know, everything always has a potential side effect, of course, but you, you know, you mirror that with people who know what they're doing and you do just fine, fine with those treatments. Okay. I, I would remiss, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has COVID changed your practice? Um, I'm assuming more telemedicine, but I think a skin thing would be harder to really diagnose and treat over the, the screen like we are today. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, we shut down like everybody else in the medical center, um, you know, in the month of basically March and April, um, and converted immediately to telemedicine, which, you know, we were doing very little of prior to COVID. Um, and, and I think it did serve a great purpose. I think it was very helpful to the patients to be able to talk to us and for us to see them. Um, you know, telephone calls were a little less helpful. Uh, but we could see a lot of things over, over, uh, you know, visual virtual telemedicine calls and 2 of my providers uh, in our department have continued to do them because they actually enjoy it. So, what I think about, um, you know, dermatology and, and virtual medicine is that it, it can still be a great thing, especially if you're just checking in on people who are, who are very, um. Stable on on a medication, say, for, you know, example, those psoriasis patients I was talking about on a biologic or the atopic dermatitis patients on a biologic or an acne patient on um, isotretinoin, you know, known otherwise known as Accutane. You know, these are people that we don't really need to see um, exactly what their skin looks like um, close up because they're, you know, consistent on medications. They may need laboratory tests, that sort of thing um, and, and intervals, but we can get that organized, you know, through tests, you know, uh, going to the testing sites. And so I think it could be very good for those chronic conditions where people are stable on medication. You know, where you get into trouble is when you got to biopsy something, you know, something's a skin cancer, a new growth, um, a new rash, you know, those people um, oftentimes need, need to be brought in. So we're, we're back at about 85 to 90% of our, our um, ability of seeing patients. And we're just really, really careful. You know, everybody has to be masked. Everybody, you know, has to wash their hands. We clean down everything, wipe down everything after every patient. Um, you know, we try to just keep our, our standards really high in the clinics um, in order to keep everybody safe. Um, you know, certainly we, you know, follow all the regulations and guidelines of the medical center and, and that has helped us not, you know, have uh, issues in, the, in our clinic. But, you know, the way things are going now, you know, we're going to have people here and there that, you know, are exposed outside of the medical center and, and, you know, we'll just deal with it. And I think mm -hmm. that's what's happening in all parts of medicine is that you just have to understand there are going to be nurses and doctors and frontline providers that are just out for a while and hopefully all of them come right back, you know, and healthy enough to come right back. And we're just going to have to, to, work, to work on that for the next few years. Well, good. Well, skin is a gift, and so are you, Amy McMichael, and I appreciate your time today. Any last words you would like to impart to the listeners? Oh, I would just like to say thank you, Andrew, for having me. It's been a joy, and any time that I can talk about dermatology and skin health, I take it. That's great. That's great. I can tell you're excited about your field and it's great to find people who are, are so animated and, and, and uh, motivated and inspiring in that. So again, I appreciate it and have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye.